Hello and welcome to On Landscape. I'm here with Joe Cornish and David Ward for one of our lockdown podcasts. And this issue, we are going to talk about landscape practice. Now, Joe, in this issue, you you are talking about uh, Paul Wakefield and his work. And, and part of that discussion talks about how he works in the field. In other words, uh, how, he, how he finds pictures, how he recognises uh, a a composition or a or a view that is in, interesting in, and I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about how we work when we're out in the field. I know there's there's multiple ways of working, but I'm I'm interested in uh, say let's say Joe, when you go out on your own and you're not with a with a workshop, let's say, what what's your process for working? Do you do you go for a walk and then see pictures, or are you on on a hunting or grazing, is that the, hunting. Is that the two <laughs> metaphors? Hunter-gatherer. Thank you, Tim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I, I, I think my own practice has probably changed uh, somewhat over the years because when I, when I was a young photographer and especially doing travel photography, that does, it tends to force you down a problem-solving approach. And often that means having some predetermined ideas uh, that you're trying to fulfill, if that makes sense. I mean, it's partly because uh, you have a, a shoot list that you're working to. And although that may just have been a temporary professional um, position, it, it also is, ha- ha- it becomes, it can become habituated. So you, you, you then tend to start thinking, oh, I'm, you know, it's such and such a time of day, such and such a time of year. So I should be looking to make such and such a type of picture. And it, it, although there there are some uh, positives to that, there's more negatives uh, overall, I believe. And I th- certainly think that for one's personal practice, it's very, very important to divest yourself, or it has been for me, you know, of, of setting out with too much expect- expectation. The only thing I would say, though, is to have a sense for the light and, and the weather conditions is, is helpful. So, uh, you know, for example, if, if the day is... Uh, is is mixed, uh, you know, mixed mobile weather systems with with uh, sunlight and cloud moving quickly overhead. That's perhaps a good day to be out in the open landscape because of that lovely uh, light and shade, uh, dappled dappled light, perhaps showers and so on around. And and the sky is something that, for me, I would be happy to photograph in those situations. Whereas a, a, a day of overcast or fog or a very flat light. I'd be much more inclined to go for woodland or somewhere dark, dark valley uh, where I can work in soft light um, with a darkish background, i.e. to try to avoid the sky almost altogether. It's also about, and sorry, Joe, isn't it also about no, um, in those circumstances, it gives you a chance in woodland to reduce the complexity. So if it's fo- fo- yeah, foggy uh, or yes, flat light, yes. it's, it's a good time to go there because so it's a, um, it's a yin and yang sort of thing, isn't it? Yes, it's it's um, it's better to be there because it's not so good to be in the open landscape, but it's also better to be there because it's um, it's better better conditions for for working with those very complex subjects. Yes, uh, exactly, and I think that the the light, the quality of light versus the contrast of the subject, although there's always exceptions and so on, and one should all you know always bear that in mind. Um, High contrast subjects tend to work better in low contrast light and, and vice versa, you might say. 
Um, I mean, it's certainly fascinating uh, for, for anybody looking at, at uh, this month's article or, or this two weeks' article, uh, Paul's work, uh, when we see it, is a lot of his subject is very, very high contrast, uh, often volcanic rock and, and ice in the same, you know, tightly juxtaposed. And um, he's made a, an amazing uh, virtue of using soft light to, you know, to animate or to bring to life such high contrast subjects. Which are inherently quite difficult in in bright or harsh lighting. Yeah. I, I, I um so, I had the privilege of sorry, go ahead, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say, I just I, I had the privilege of spending an afternoon with him when I was still a photographic assistant and looking at some of his transparencies, uh, and I showed him I think a portfolio of a few of mine, <coughs> and his comment at the time, what was I, I was. 22 or something I think and his comment at the time was you can't just shoot at the beginning and the end of the day David <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and he had I think he'd just come back from New Zealand as far as I remember and so he had a lot of kind of pictures with black sand beaches and um, uh, and I think he'd been up to the glaciers uh, to um, on the South Island there and I was just yes yeah, a lot of them were shot in very soft light and the kind of light that I at the time using mostly ectochrome I suppose um, tried to avoid because um, you know you got a very strong blue cast and it wasn't ectochrome wasn't very good at separating out the colors so I think it's very important to um, map now maybe in digital it's easier but it, but you have to kind of match your style of photography to um, to to the media that you're using in, in photographically don't you so shooting black and white you might well go for um, soft subjects but use high contrast printing output to to um to balance those two and i think that comes across in the consistency of paul's work as well because he does have from your, your interview or our chat with him he, he does have a consistency of light and feel to the pictures and that's not just to do with the lighting is chosen it's to do with the viewpoint as well um and that that was quite interesting for me i've heard it from a few contemporary landscape photographers like jem southern or simon roberts who stands on a on a stepladder for most of his photographs but do you have any thoughts about that david about uh, heights of viewpoint or aspect etc um, yeah i mean I, I i'm mostly try to avoid shooting at eye height i suppose <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh, you know, the so, way uh, uh, obviously if you get down low um, you you, you um, emphasize perspective quite a lot if you've got tall objects in the frame and or you've got something that you can foreground although most of the time for me I suppose I'm shooting a detail so um, but so the perspective is generally um, I'd be using a medium uh, lens like an equivalent of a 50 or a 70 or something like that and it's very sort of normal perspective um, but if I'm shooting a wider landscape I do like to 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 really vary it as much as I can and and as much as anything else it's about what you include within the frame so you might want to use something foreground like a, a branch of a tree or something and yeah if you want to get that in and you want it to mm. work in a particular way you might need to be right up at the maximum of your tripod and um but it's yeah. so easy and i see it all the time with workshops people just do you know they come out in the landscape and they set the tripod at, at eye height because that's that's the most comfortable way to stand in front of the in front of the camera 
and I frequently, now I'm getting on a little bit, find myself um, with kind of nasty cramps and stuff because I get myself in a position where, um, you know, where I want to be for the picture and you end up with a bad back or you end up with the, your calf muscles really cramped because you're standing or crouching or bending over for 15 or 20 minutes at a time. Um, I probably ought to do yoga. Perhaps I can get lessons from your Jenny, Jack. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think she. I don't think she'd cope with me as a student. Um, <laughs> Too facetious. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to take it seriously. Um, but yeah, so it's 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 again, it's about fitting. So like, the light is fitted to the subject. I mean, and, and that is very much uh, my method when I'm out in the landscape. Is I'm trying to fit subject and light and perspective all all in with each other it's a it's a multi-dimensional puzzle mm. that you're trying to get to fit together in the most what but but you did say that you you work almost almost always with a 210 lens you i mean this is retrospectively yeah, looking at your um, pictures i think probably 70 or 80 percent of the photos were shot on the 210 yeah and before that that before do you think that, that's to, on the 150 do you think that's to do with you Right. Yeah. Do you think that's to do with you recognizing, or the, just your your gaze of recognizing pictures fits? Um, I like. Um, so obviously, it's a, it's a stylistic choice, but I like the slightly compressed perspective that uh, a slightly longer than standard lens gives you. It makes it easier for you to isolate details within within the scene. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I do photograph skies. Um, but but you know not 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 very often. Um, I find it too difficult. To like contrast is tricky stuff. Um, <laughs> tricky stuff. Um, so uh, it's 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 a more natural gaze, I suppose, is what is what I feel it gives me. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. Uh, you know, if you look at something like I actually I haven't seen any Mark Adamus's work recently, but his stuff from four or five years ago, where he was doing a lot of extreme wide angle stuff. Which it was very, um, it's it's very in your face, isn't it? And it and it very much announces the photographer. Um, and I think I I'm generally trying to um, step back from that. So I'm you know I might announce myself by my choice of subjects, but I don't want the photographic process to or the photographic technique to kind of intrude in. Yeah. That's interesting because I know Joe's used some ultra wide lenses on a few pictures, but they haven't looked ultra wide. I don't think I think you're very similar. You don't want to look. No, don't want things to look. I that have way. done, um, but I very rarely do. To be fair, um, I, yeah. I do think you were. This it's a lovely conversation because what you find is that everybody is different, and and I think you know as it, yeah. as it should be. You know, D David's. I mean, I, I think you perhaps do use other focal lengths as well, but uh, now. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I mean, I, I love um, basically shoot in 35 millimeter terms between 24 and 50 for the vast majority yeah. of my work. But it is, uh, you know, I'll have virtually every focal length probably within that. And for me, the, the, um, the composition is very much determined by what I feel are the relationships I'd like to establish you know, within within that that framework, and sometimes I use a longer lens um, as well. But I I will try to avoid super wides because you know to go to go back to that point, they do tend to announce themselves or they announce the photographic technique to the viewer. So on the whole, I think it's better to avoid 
avoid them. Although, as in terms of problem solving, they can sometimes be the only solution. You know. Well, that's what Paul Wakefield yeah. said, wasn't it? It was he would he would tend to uh, to on a one twenty mil lens, which is about so, um, thirty mil. Thirty five, near enough, uh, you could say. Thirty five. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he will go wider if he really needs it. But it's an exception rather than a rule for his. Yeah, I'm not sure. You have that yeah. lovely picture of the rumps, don't you? In yeah, that's what I was yes. thinking of. Yes. Yeah, which was shot with a well, well remembered, gents, uh, with a 58 millimeter mm. on 5.4. So that was, uh, gosh, what's that? About 15 or 16 millimeter. It's pretty much I the think. widest you can get that covers 5.4. It's 40. 45. There's a 45 that yeah. they yeah. covers. They well, yeah. I was going to say, I think, I think it was a 47, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, um, uh, That's right. Yeah. Super angle on XL, but anyway, you know, those are, um, yeah, they're pretty extreme optics. Of course, it, nothing seems extreme anymore, does it? Because if there are now 12 millimeter yeah. rectilinear zooms, even that uh, are made, so you know, we we have, and yet this is a strange thing. You know, we, we live in a, a world where. Technology is almost solving every problem. Super fast lenses now as well, but actually, you can use a you can use a 35, 40 year old, thirty five millimeter lens, and it can still produce absolutely wonderful photographs. So, you don't need expensive gear uh, to make great pictures. It really is. It's about how you see, you know, that makes your photography yeah. interesting. Actually, Tim, you might be able to answer this because there there's, there was a lot of kind of um, talk. I haven't heard it so much recently uh, about uh, the resolving power of lenses um, and, I, and how you had to have digital lenses for resolving because of the line pairs, the number of line pairs they could resolve. Is, yes. is this one of those yeah. myths? It's, it's sort of a myth and it's sort of not. There is a, a, the old Zeiss lenses, they did some tests with uh, microfish film, like microfilm. And they managed to get down to, uh, to 400 line pairs per millimetre on a 25 millimetre lens in the centre, which would work out about 300 megapixels on a 35 mil camera. But as soon as you stop down to f5.6, it starts dropping. As soon as you go into the corners of the lens, it starts dropping. Uh, I think with digital, what most of the problem is, is to do with contrast and also trying to get lenses that work well in the corners. That's when things start to get more complicated. Yeah. So it's it's more about it, it's more about the le lens designers used to work to the medium, so they worked to film. And they didn't need to go extreme. Um, and now, obviously, we've got lenses like the Otis, which are, I suppose, the the extremes at the moment, the Zeiss Otis which is a effectively a medium format lens, which where you just use the yeah. center of it. So you get perfect corners as well. Um, yeah, but they're huge. And expensive. And very expensive, yeah. And they're expensive, yeah, doesn't help. But I mean, we, we're quite lucky now with people, companies like Sigma are creating a whole host of extremely good lenses at fairly reasonable prices. Yeah, yeah, uh, they, they are. I mean, yeah, I think that these, uh, these are, it's a really interesting conversation because the, the manufa manufacturers are very powerful in our industry and it's in the interest of manufacturers to have us believe that we need to keep changing our gear you know i've got nothing against manufacturers they have to make a living you know don't, don't get me wrong but I, I do think it's important to point out that photography is about seeing you know and and the gear and i love gear as much as anybody but it it, it actually doesn't make that much difference a lot of the time and a really interesting conversation this morning with uh, my my friend Tony who you guys both know well as well and 
Um, he he's uh, just been loaned a 150 uh, megapixel back from Phase, um, and he's got an old Mamiya 35 millimeter uh, medium format lens, which is doesn't have a great reputation. He's been having a play with it and and says he's getting super results. He's really happy with. It. They're not great in the corners. Uh, but he's really happy with how the pictures look, you know, and ultimately that's all that matters. Mm. If he's happy with the way they look, where they need to be sharp, then, you know, great, you should go ahead and use it. And, and I think it's just uh, not not only is the lens cheap because he already owns it, but because the alternative is really expensive, but it's a lot lighter, probably about one third of the weight of the contemporary version of that lens. And obviously on an optical bench, it won't be as good, but... If, if you get good results with it that you can print happily, then why worry? Well, I, I like to think about how you reach a certain point with the equipment where it's good enough for you and you can forget about it. That's, that's the sort of goal that I like to get to. And I know that's the same with Paul Wakefield's work. Is he's, he's, the reason he uses 5.4 is he's very familiar with it. He knows how it all works. It does the job he wants it to do, and he doesn't have to think about the equipment anymore. Uh, and I think that's a that's a good goal because it means you can get on with what we're talking about, which is going out and making pictures. Yeah, I mean the camera shouldn't get between you and the and what you're doing, should it? So it should it should be transparent. Ideally, it's it's just a conduit. Um, and you know we've talked I think before about the, this notion that um, uh, you should have the enough kind of familiarity with the gear that it that you don't have to think too much digital photography kind of interrupts that quite a lot because you have menu trees which are a right pain in the arse compared to you know the old the old completely manual cameras where you just turn a couple of dials and then you know you let the film do the rest um but the 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 real point is that you should go into the landscape and you should um find the kind of subject that interests you and not have to think too much about how actually you're going to capture mm. that with your piece of gear. <laughs> Decisions have to be made about exposure and you check a histogram on a digital camera and all that kind of stuff. But I'm a firm believer that you, as you say, you just have gear that, that suits you in terms of how complex it is. I, I, I have a fraction of the gear of a lot of people that I'm, who come on my workshops. I've got um, two camera bodies that I use and four lenses and that's it um, and, and that's fine by me uh, is, is your working practice to go out to really take your equipment for a walk and then see if you see anything or are you are you hunting for things no I, I, I never have well, a goal in I mean, mind no yeah. um, no so I suppose I'm a grazer but yeah <laughs> We might optimise locate. You might yeah. with food as well. You might optimise locations. Is that right? With food, yes. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but would you would you choose to optimise where you're going? So thinking, well, that might be interesting visually. Let's go for a walk. There. Yeah, there's a little bit of well, yeah. So we're talking about not with a workshop group, aren't we? So which um, yeah, which sadly in a normal year I don't have much time to um, to do that. Like, actually, last couple of months I've I've, I've got the the, the desire to make photographs back so I've been going out shooting quite a lot um, I yeah I just I just think oh well let's go and have a walk there and see what I can find generally I mean I went out the other morning because it was misty and I thought oh that might be quite nice when I saw that ice hair that I posted a picture on um, Facebook yeah. um, 
Uh, and um, actually, when we got there, the mist had all gone, so I didn't take the cameras out of the, out of the car. I left them in the boot and I went for a walk instead. Um, uh, and, I, and I actually didn't see anything um, that I would have photographed, so I didn't, I didn't regret that. Uh, but the, you never know what you will find. You never know what you will find that will intrigue you. That, that's the, the real point. I, I, going back to what Joe said earlier about expectations, I try to not have expectations. I try to just um, wander around with a open stroke empty mind uh, and, and, and see what... Yeah. It's getting it's, easier it's getting over time. It's getting easier over time, yeah. Eventually I won't be able to remember my name, obviously, but, you know, that's... I'll, I'll have it sewn in the back of my collar and then that'll be fix that problem. Um, I, um, Bernice Abbott, wasn't it? I think you said that um, if you travel with expectations, you make expected photographs. Uh, and so it is definitely a break, I think, on uh, creativity. Now that piece that I just wrote about poverty flats, I had no expectation of what I was going to shoot when I got there. It was just entirely reacting to what, what I found. Um, and all my favourite photographs have been shot in in that way um, I, I just find it uh, well it's, it's um, the Bill Brandt thing about um, travelling with the um, the eyes of a child you know just, just being open to whatever is in, in yeah. front of you um, what do you in, in terms of when, when something does engage you I mean I, I have this um, little thing in the back of my head that there must be at least two things and preferably three things that engage me about something i might not see a composition straight away but if there's if there's a few components of an area or or a subject that interests me i'll 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 try and see if there's something there do you have a a process in recognizing things or is it literally just a that um, there must be a picture i don't there? i don't i don't break it down into components i don't think i'll, I'll find something that i find visually yeah. intriguing uh and then I might spend any time between five minutes and 45 minutes just looking at it, trying to work out what I want to shoot. So, it, yeah, it can, can be quite a slow um, process. Um, and Does that start off with composition or subject, really, normally? Um, well, you see, I, 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 don't think the two, I don't think the two are separate. Yeah. Um, you know, composition is generally spoken about i think in terms of the graphic isn't it and and, I, and um the uh who was it who said it was um weston wasn't it who said um that good composition is making the strongest possible photograph and what he meant by that was i think the most yeah. appropriate composition to um to the subject so they're they're wedded to each other they're the how how about i change the language then how about i say relationships or surface those two things that you recognize in a subject <laughs> um okay. you're gonna say the same thing well, it sort of is isn't it i mean it's, it it's, is it's the same thing yes it's so difficult there's to, a spatial it's difficult to separate spatial puzzle always that you're trying to solve because you're yeah. trying to collapse these three physical dimensions plus time into a into a flat plane to and then in, enclose it in a, in a frame that's an appropriate distance around it. Um, so there, there's there's that puzzle, but there's also the the aesthetic puzzle beyond that, which is about 
you know, what kind of feeling do I get from this? And how do I express that in the graphic? But they are all kind of interwoven with each other. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and what 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 what, trig what triggers you when you're <laughs> no 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 at all I was I was painfully in agreement David so, yeah uh, I I could um, I couldn't I couldn't really find fault at all with that particularly your last point uh, because the, the the aspect of feeling is the one that you cannot actually describe you can't really analyze it it is a feeling and a lot of it is inevitably tied up with com complex relationships of texture tone and light which are unique to that place at that moment um, and 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 they may be uh triggering things in your memory in your imagination you know that may go back to childhood or you know at any any point in your life that that um you've absorbed and and somehow find reflected or or that that starts some you know that, that provokes some reaction in you and it's just that you can't really articulate those except through making the picture. Which is, which, which and, and in a way, got, that's the point. But yeah. Which is why um, rules you, don't work, isn't it? It is, exactly. And, mm. and so, uh, I mean, again, I, I don't know if we've covered this previously, but there is, a, there is a baleful tendency in the community, or in some parts of it at any rate, to try to apply rules and it is understandable because, you know, there's a sort of, arguably, there's a, a kind of science uh, to photography, but we, where there's an aesthetic science. And, and, we, and yes, you can analyse um, compositional relationships to a degree. But what you can't really say is that there's any real absolutes involved. And I think when you look at something as complex as the landscape, then, you know, a grid-based system of analysis is only going to get you so far and no further it's just it just doesn't make sense there's far too many uh you know non the world most of the uh, of the shapes and tones and so on are, are organic you know non-linear or if they are linear they're they're um, relatively arbitrary so there's so there's so many complexities which is why i I'm, you know if there's one thing i do believe in in composition it's relationships because it's, uh, ultimately it's only for me, it's only the, um, the the way that you manage your relationships that makes sense in terms of analysing them. Okay, so I, I have a, I have a, a a question for you, Joe. Um, in terms of monochrome or colour, what what are the triggers for you to think I'd like to work in monochrome as opposed to colour? Oh, well, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a good question, and it's a, it's a difficult question for me personally, though. Because I'm increasingly trying to work in colour whenever possible. I really would. I would love to solve colour problems. I, I I do think that I, well, I definitely do see in colour, and I I love colour. I love I love its depth and emo and emotion. I'm not saying that black and white course doesn't have depth and emotion. Absolutely can do, but it's a, uh, but taking taking it out is such a strong statement um, of abstraction. For me and that 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 is in itself um a very decisive artistic decision um having said all of that there are certain colors that are very very hard to to render well in a photograph you know and a slimy greens would definitely be one of them <laughs> or not one because there's there's a you know probably a million slimy greens. we see forty thousand you know, i think in, greens in, don't in, we i think 
Do we? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, you know the feeling though. It's a lot of yellowish greens with a relatively low saturation that kind of can cause off-putting emotionally, and I'm not sure why that is. Whether that's a deep evolutionary reason or or whether it's just our own associations, it's hard hard to say. But well, you you're not a fan of green, uh, are you, well, David? This is I've I've been. Um... I've had this slur cast against me for quite a number of years now. I'm not per se against green. Uh, the issue is that we can't ignore green. I'm going to say some of my best friends are green. <laughs> I know well, green I'd like people. to qualify. I hope. <laughs> uh, so, so the so 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 if you have green in the composition, if it's not adding something, if it's not integral. To, to how that composition works, then it becomes very distracting. We all think of, you know, a red spot or, or something like that as being very distracting. But actually, greens, I think, are more distracting than that. As our, our vision is biased hugely towards green tones. We see more or less twice as many greens as we do any other part of the spectrum, which is why on the, on the mm. digital sensor you have red, green, green, blue. Because if it was just one green, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get the proper balance. Um, so I think it's it, it just makes the puzzle of composition harder to solve on occasions, um, and there are definite connotations, some very positive connotations, obviously about green, green being life, green being vegetation, green being food. Um, but some greens are, yeah, are unappealing, and I, and I'm guessing that they're unappealing because they also stand. It also stands for decay things that are rotting are quite often unpleasant green colors um or things that are in, inedible anyway are quite often un, unpleasant green colors so i'm i'm thinking there must probably be some biological reason why we're not we're not keen on that part of the spectrum um i've not actually that that's um something that might be worth having a look at at some time i did do that talk about color a while mm. ago and i didn't actually um get into the nitty-gritty of that maybe i'll have a look um but I, I, I don't. I've done some compositions which are just green, um, so um, I, I don't per se disapprove of it. It's just it's it's something to be very aware of. And I think in when Joe and I were both shooting on Velvia, well, Fuji films generally had quite a strong response to green, um, so it, it made mm. it maybe a little bit worse. Nowadays on digital, you can you can play various tricks, take a bit of the yellow out of the green, or desaturate it or make it less insistent uh, in the photograph um. Talk, talking about that and, and also talking about triggered by the black and white conversation is is Paul Wakefield for instance prefers to use one particular film or nearly all the time now he has used transparency film in the past uh, and, and you've both used Velvia transparency film uh, Velvia 50 in particular and that, that provides a certain look and limitation in the way you work. And, I, and being as you're both moved to digital now, do you find the the scope for what you can do with digital sometimes a distraction? Was it easier working with a, a consistent rendering that the film gave you? Joe? I, yeah, I, I could I could say that I, I don't uh, find it a distraction. I actually really like it. Um, and I, I think the two immediate reasons for that the first is that it, it's a reminder that it's your job as the artist if i can put it that way to uh, to decide what your response is whereas the um 
you know, the color transparency is more analogous to a print. It's already kind of halfway decided for you. It's more difficult to, uh, I mean, you can still change your hues, but it's not as satisfactory. Um, and the, the, whereas the raw file is very, very elastic, especially if it's been shot in, in good quality light, not so much in, you know, limited lighting, but in, in daylight, it is, it is very elastic. Um, and, uh, and the second reason, um, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. <laughs> I still almost forget. I still it this trying out, to describe it. Okay. Oh dear. Yeah. It, it's, um, it, it, yeah. What was I going to say? Anyway, it, it's, it's definitely something that uh, that I think is is enjoyable about it, and also you can enjoy, you can control the contrast so much better. But uh, mm. oh, yeah, I, I know what it was. It was this that I do have a philosophical starting point for uh, for, for the color for each picture. You know, when you open the raw file on uh, the convert on the raw converter. Um, occasionally it looks spot on but rarely so in in my experience so i i work towards what uh, what i consider the the uh, the optimum balance and it's not the same as as the camera's white balance but it's a perceptual one which is personal to me where the balance between the warm and the cool tones um and the, the green and the, and the magenta tone so yellow blue and green and magenta feel right and there's a little bit of everything from both sides and the way i and do you, sorry I, I, and i just feel that it doesn't always end up at that point by the way but that is a starting point and that way i feel it's like my control and from there i can i can take the the white balance or the color balance where i want it to go but you you still achieve a consistent look across your pictures and and, and is that it do you have an idea of what things are going to convert to look like when you're out in the field or is it more that you feel as if you're capturing the raw data in the field for later that's a re yeah I, I would say on it on the whole i really uh, i would say 85 percent of it let's say is dictated by memory it's the idea of, yeah. of trying to connect to that memory that's not to say i'm trying to reproduce exactly what i saw but it is that there's a there's a truth and a reality and an authenticity and a beauty in that 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 appeals to me. I mean, there are exceptions because sometimes, uh, you know, as to refer back to what David was saying, the greens in a scene can be overwhelming, but your brain is already processing them down when you're there. You know, and that that's one of the interesting things. So you're all, you're already engaging in a in a translation process when you're out in the field. I think that the, I have enough to trust in the raw files that that they yeah they usually provide the raw material that you need ninety nine percent of the time. And David, you're you're just starting, I suppose, down um, some of this journey of the flexibility of, of yeah, and I, I found it very um, um, disconcerting to, to start off with. Um, I found it a real um, inhibition inhibitor, I should say in in. It held me back from making pictures, or or I I made pictures and I thought well, that wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be like. Because yeah, I I think I used Velvia for gosh how long, twenty five years or something. I don't know when did it come out, Joe? Nineties? No, eighties. Uh, no, ninety. Yeah, nineteen eighty eight. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so, so well. twenty years or so. I used I used um. Velvia, more than 20 years I used Velvia, and you get to see 
in a not in, not infallibly, but pretty well, you get to see as the, as the emulsion sees. So you stand somewhere and you think, okay, yeah, I know what I'm pretty much know what this is going to look like on velvet. Not always because it catches you out because your eyes are you're constantly adjusting the yeah. color. Um, but I found it very difficult to to swap to something that was so plastic. And and one of my ways of dealing with that out in the field is to set the camera always to daylight balance and and then I have a fixed point again. I found that if I put it on auto white balance, yeah. it goes all over the shop and, and I don't know where it's going to end up. I don't know. I know afterwards with well, the raw file, I can always take yeah. it back. But but I, I, I found the um, the reassurance of knowing where I was starting from, a bit like Joe having a you know philosophical standpoint for the colour. I found that was a, a, a very good way to, to um to approach it um but yeah it's early days Anchor, in a way yeah yeah and, and the re yeah. you know what tim was saying about restrictions being good which we mentioned this in a previous podcast it, i think restrictions are good I, th I think it's very good sometimes to have limitations um i'll leave you with the last thing we can talk about which is um how you frame a picture when you're in the field now whether you use a viewfinder or a square or the camera itself, or you know what you're going to get probably just by looking at it. After you, Joe. Well, that's a yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, I have uh, the, over the last uh, three or four years, I've used my phone a lot uh, for for framing, and I found that very good. Um, and especially, it's it's helpful in one way because it does include a kind of photographic rendering, you know, whereas the, the optical viewfinder doesn't. And yet, and yet, I have to say. Uh, having had that conversation with Paul recently, I picked up my old optical viewfinder and went out with it the other day, and I really enjoyed using it. Um, perhaps because it, it wasn't as accurate as the phone, and it, it gave a little bit more kind of a, of the feel of the light um, that that the, that the camera gets. It's sort of uh, a hybrid in a way. The phone is 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 a very very obvious stylistic um, interpretation. It's a very photographic rendering. And and, I, and in some ways it, it over maybe for me it overinterprets it, and I be, I start to think that the world does look like the phone. Well, it's it's because it's so. the phone is doing computational photography. It's it's adding an extra layer, isn't it? And it can it can be quite deceptive, yeah. I think. And I, I certainly know workshop participants who use the phone as the, as their kind of go to for working out what their composition is, and then then they get the pictures back on the camera and. Um, okay, the the perspective might be similar, but actually the, the the whole feel of the picture seems to have changed between the phone and and the camera. Um, I I I've, I have tried doing that, and and I do occasionally take you know uh, maybe n I wouldn't use it for a sort of um, a final working working out of the composition, but I would use it maybe just to take a picture to see, especially something like the contrast range. Um, of an image because our eyes can really deceive us on something like that so I might stand in front of a subject and and take a couple of phone shots and see if that that contrast range seemed usable um, yeah I, I wasn't one for using the, the viewfinder with the 5.4 very much the um, I did use it sometimes but mostly I I am um, I used the uh, you know the um, with a thumb and forefinger um, system <laughs> yeah, yeah. just to try and work yeah. out you know kind of where I want the limits of the frame to be. Um, so how do you do it, Tim? Well, I I still use a combination of the two. I do use a square. Um, I have I have a couple cut for various 
aspect ratios for the back of the camera. I have a holding mm. holding a six seventeen one up in front of me, which I I don't use because I tend to use six twelve. Interesting conversation I had with Joe earlier about it, but I do use the. I quite like the way the Sony renders it because it uses daylight balance and it's an electronic viewfinder. I get something quite engaging. I can see the blue in a picture if there's blue in the shadows, etc. So I, I often use that. I mean, David Unsworth, who lives across the lock from us, he uses He has a, a proper gold leaf embossed frame from a picture that he takes into the field with him. Wow. And uses that to frame. <laughs> wow. So, I love it. <laughs> quite a classical little surround for it. But, I suppose it's weatherproof yeah, not... if it's gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do I do like to see the aspect ratio I'm working in, and I sometimes find it difficult to do that with a 35mm viewfinder. It uh, works in some cases and not in others. So you find the aspect ratio is something that you, you really want to work to when you take a picture? I... I tend to, yeah, because I like to work the edges and corners of a picture. So I'm, I, I don't like to take a picture with a, with a, my digital camera, and try to guess where the left and right boundaries of of it are going to be if it's not going to be in two to three. Right. Okay. So I mean, mostly I'm shooting five seven, and the Sony doesn't give you that as a as a crop option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, there's always a bit of wiggle room. Basically, I just allow a little bit of room top and bottom, but I don't have. I could put tape on the on the screen to make it the right proportions, but it never quite works nicely. No, no. I, I I'll tend to just frame a little bit wider, typically if I'm using the viewfinder. Right. Um, but I but I do much prefer to work the corners. What I'll tend to do is use the camera and compose the bottom left edge corner, and then compose the top right corner in a picture. Wow. For instance, if if I'm doing it that accurately, which I don't <laughs> always do. I but don't sometimes. think I ever consciously do that. Isn't it interesting? This is, when we have our, our um, composition conversation, this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then again, if you've got it on, if you're working on a five four um, viewfinder, it's there in front of you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the the difficulties swapping uh, to to the Sony from the five four was, you know, you've you're, you've got the dark cloth over your head with the five four, and you're completely kind of uh, engrossed in what's in front of you in that image that's on the screen and you can be very accurate about how you how you set yep. out that composition um, and it's already flattened for you and um, and the colour pops more because you've taken all of that information from your peripheral vision out with the dark cloth and it, it it's difficult to have the extra distractions which I get when I'm just holding a, a 35mm well, mirrorless in this case camera to my eye I think um, I found it much there, easier with the dark cloth there is something I do which is probably similar to the, the, the ground glass popping idea is I turn the contrast and colour qu quite high on my viewfinder Right. so the actual, the actual in camera settings give you a very saturated very contrasty viewpoint um, right. and I, I do that because it gives me an idea of some of the subtle colours what they may be like in the final picture Right. Okay. I don't. I don't like to compose with a very, the 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 default flat color that cameras. Well, are there you go. With. And that's that's interesting because I have my Sony A7R2 set to neutral, really flat, which is the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't know what that says about us, but um, I'm with you, Joe. I'm like, on neutral probably, as well. Yeah. 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 Um, 
but anyway, it, it's uh, it's whatever works for you, isn't Absolutely. it? And in a way, I suppose that would be probably the right conclusion for any conversation like this. Yeah, you know, because it, it's so it's so fascinating to to hear and see how other people work, and then realise that there's no there's no right way really. I just believe that's to be the case. Find, I've certainly changed. Finding a way is the uh, important thing. Yeah, I, th I think just to return to a point that you made early on, Joe, about how you, know, you talked about your practice changing. And I remember visiting you probably more than 20 years ago. Uh, and you had a map on the wall in your studio with notes about places on the North York Moors that you wanted to visit and what time of day and what time of year were going to be good and... And I was thinking, oh, yeah, daylight grid. Yeah, and I was thinking, I've yeah. never been that bloody organised in my life. Um, <laughs> but you, I think that came from your practice as a as a jobbing photographer. You, you know, when you're when you're working to to order, you have to make you have to produce the product, don't you? Uh, you have to, and and for you also, I suppose at the time you were doing a lot more postcards and a lot of the. You still do the calendar, but I don't think you do so many postcard pictures. So it was important that you got the <laughs> no. um, that you got the material wasn't it every month yeah it, it yeah it was and and you know i don't i don't um i, I don't pretend that that i uh you know to be a sort of devoted artist in that way I, I still have to work to order some of the time um uh you know just just finished working on a book currently and uh, a shoot list is you know is still something you know the author of the shoot list and you know that from your yeah. experience david they, they can be very frustrating to work to because Authors, I'm afraid, often don't have a clue what makes a good photo, you know. But uh, you, your job is to try to make something palatable out of often very unpromising material. Sometimes they've and never seen it, have they? Too. They've never seen the original. Well, no. <laughs> often, yeah. often they yeah. haven't. But anyway, that, that's a, that's another story. But uh, I, I still enjoy problem solving. Um, but you know, it, it, the, the, the sort of ultimate uh, position to be in is one where you, you can, you know, put yourself. At the mercy of inspiration, as the saying goes, uh, and allow allow it to unfold. I do think that that's the ideal where where it's possible, but it's not to say one doesn't have to have, you know, some ideas. I I know several photographers who I admire greatly who are very you know very assiduous planners who really like to stick to an you know work to an idea, stick to it, and 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 fulfil it. You know, and that's that's their way of working. Well, I, so, I'm, it's going to be interesting because that. I'm working on a, a possible book project um, involving a, an area of the mountains here in Scotland. Um, and it's got to be done over the space of a year. So I, I presume I shall have to plan a certain set of photographs. If I go out there and have no plan, I'll probably end up with 57 photographs of one group of trees in one area and <laughs> nothing else. Or... But yeah, I, I, I think that depends on what you're trying to achieve, doesn't it? Um, when, when you did your work on Scotland's mountains, presumably you had a, a list of things you wanted to include, and perhaps aspects, etc. Yeah, I, I did, but in in the end, actually, that was, that was for me was a very important book because it, it because it was in a way it was a, it was a sort of turning point. I think, even though I was still, well, it was a turning point in several in several ways, but particularly the fact that I, I really learned, I think most, uh, that was the steepest learning curve in terms of shooting in very difficult weather uh, to do a book on Scotland's mountains. You'd think that would come with the territory, but I, I probably, you know, I had all sorts of ideas before I set out to do it and hopes and expectations, most of which weren't fulfilled, but 
but actually completely new um, new opportunities arose because I, I started shooting in the rain and in, in the snow and in fog and in, in conditions I probably previously wouldn't have done before. Um, and, and it was, yeah, um, really helpful uh, in, in that way. Uh, and, and yes, you have an idea, but at the same time, because I was also the author for that book, I could also yeah. move it in the direction that I wanted to. So, yeah. Well, great. Thank you very much for that. All very inspiring. I think that's going to be the, the last thing we, we have published in Onlinescape before Christmas. So thank you very much, Joe and David. Thank you. Thanks, Tim.